Thanks for downloading this BGSM podcast. My guest today is Dr. Tasha Stanton, a senior research fellow working for the Body in Mind group in both Adelaide and Sydney here in Australia. She's originally from Canada, however, where she completed her training as a clinical physiotherapist with a master's in spinal biomechanics before completing a PhD in Sydney in 2010. She's won multiple prestigious awards for her work on pain science. And with all of this experience behind her, it's absolutely awesome to have her on the line with me today. So this will actually be the first of a two-part podcast series on helping your patients to deal with the pain they're going through. So keep an eye out on the second podcast that'll be coming for you soon, which is on pain and osteoarthritis. So thanks for joining us on the line today, Dr. Stanton. My pleasure, Liam. It's fantastic to get to chat. All of our listeners will have seen patients with pain that doesn't match their clinical examination. What's going on in these cases? Well, certainly this isn't um, something that uh, doesn't happen very often. We do see it a lot when we work clinically. And I guess this challenge between um, the disconnect between what you see happening in the periphery and then in terms of tissue damage and then actually what people are feeling and reporting in terms of pain can be very difficult, I think, sometimes to deal with. But I think it actually gives us a lot of really good information because it suggests that actually there's important processes in play. There's other things involved that are contributing to that pain experience. And I think it highlights the complexity that is pain. And we're starting to understand that based on the neuroscience literature and research because we're starting to understand that pain is this complex experience that involves putting together information from many different sources in order to determine whether or not the body needs to be protected. And as such, the danger or danger messages coming from damaged tissues, those are only one source of information. There's so many other things, such as your previous experience, you know, what, um, what you've, you've had happen to that body part before, um, your fears, your thoughts, your anxieties, and all those things are a really important part that's considered um, by our brain in terms of whether or not an output of pain is warranted. And we know, for example, that there is a lot of different changes that can occur with people when they've started to have pain for a while. And one example of this is the idea of sensitization, particularly central sensitization, which is the nervous system itself becoming more sensitive. And we see this in terms of if, for example, we um, apply pressure to someone, if their uh, nervous system is sensitized, they'll often perceive that to be more painful than someone else, despite you know, using an identical force. And those processes, what they mean is, is that the message coming from the periphery is actually not, um, I would guess, accurately represented as it goes up to the brain. So for example, if you're getting um, three nociceptors firing, suddenly with central sensitization, the message is amplified and you're getting you know, this signal of, of up to 10, let's say, and I'm just obviously pulling these numbers out of the air, but it's this idea of um, your dorsal horn of your spinal cord basically acting as the volume knob of a radio. So when you crank the volume knob of the radio, it gets louder, but it doesn't mean that the person who's talking on the radio is actually speaking louder. And that just like when we have central sensitization in, our, in uh, the spinal cord, it doesn't actually mean that the message coming from the periphery is any more. It just means we're amplifying it. So right away, literally at that more basic neurophysiological level, there can be a disconnect between what's going on in terms of tissue damage and the signal danger message coming from that and what's actually getting up to the brain. 
But as humans, we're so much more complex than that. And we know that other processes can come into place. And so one example um, is this idea of, of Hebbian coactivation. Um, this, the idea that things that uh, fire together, wire together. So for example, if you, let's say you have back pain and you feel quite anxious, particularly when you do certain movements, well, if that feeling of anxiety and that movement and the pain all tend to occur at the same time, they begin to fire together all the time, they become more efficient and they are uh, almost activated as a network. So what it means then is sometimes actually when you're merely just anxious, you start to feel back pain, despite the fact that, gosh, you're not actually doing anything that would normally cause your back pain. So I think what it means for us, um, I guess I speak from this probably more so as, as from my physio background, but I think it, what it means is that we probably need to adapt some of our clinical examination techniques as well to take into consideration, is this person exhibiting signs of sensitization or are they, you know, can I actually elicit these different symptoms that they have when they're not in a position that it's actually occurring um, that normally would cause those symptoms, but can I bring them on literally by discussing different things or getting them to imagine different environments, for example. So I think it, it opens the door for the way that we look at how we examine our patients and the questions we ask them. I really wish that someone at medical school taught me about pain like this. It would have been a lot easier for the last sort of 10 years. The patient often thinks that it's the case that pain equals tissue damage and they come into clinic saying, you know, I'm painful because I've torn this. How do you try and explain the actual relationship with pain pathology and what they're actually experiencing? Yeah, that's a great question because it's not easy because our entire lives, I would argue, we've been you know, taught that it hurts and uh, you feel that pain because you've damaged something, you've injured something. And for the most part, particularly acutely, that is the case. You have actually injured some tissue. You've had nociceptors begin to activate and they send that message um, through the spinal cord and up to the brain. And you um, perceive that, that uh, you are in sufficient danger that an output is a uh, pain is, is experience is uh, created. But I think the key part of all of this is that understanding that pain is really a protective response. It's there to protect us from either real or perceived danger. So instead of seeing it as a direct link to tissue damage, um, it's seeing it as pain is this output that is occurring whenever we need to protect our body part. And so the need to protect could come from a nociceptive signal from injured tissue, from a danger message from injured tissue. But the need to protect could also come from um, a fear, let's say, a fear of moving because the last time you moved into that position, actually that's how you hurt yourself. It could come from um, a, a dangerous environment. Or actually we can see the other way around is sometimes when we're in very dangerous environments, let's say you're, I'll use a, a, an Australian example, you're being chased by a very angry kangaroo. If you've sprained your ankle, it actually usually doesn't hurt because there's more important things at play. You need to escape, you need to get out. So um, anything that changes um, the need to protect then also changes pain. And that can be a difficult thing, I think, for people to wrap their head around, but it's an important thing because it puts the control back to that person in that they do have control over some of these really weird pain fluctuations or increases because they understand that there's various different um, inputs that can contribute to an experience of pain.
Um, and I guess one example that can be sometimes helpful to give to people to understand um, even at a basic level this disconnect between pain and tissue damage is to use a test such as a pressure pain threshold test. So in that test, um, uh, for anyone working medically, as, as we, we well know, you're applying pressure to a person's leg, let's say, or to their tissue somewhere, and you're getting them to tell you to stop at the point at which they first feel pain. But here's the thing, you're not damaging tissues with that test. So people are feeling pain without tissue damage, and that's because pain actually comes on before you damage tissues. It's protective. And I think understanding that even at a basic neurophysiological level, that there's this disconnect between pain and tissue damage helps people to understand this idea that actually pain is protective. It's not the fact that it, it is just um, really a readout, so to speak, of the amount of tissue damage that's going on um, in, your, in your body. And I don't think that that often is one conversation with someone. I think it's numerous conversations over time and giving um, as many examples as you can to, to try to, um, I guess, give a bit more evidence to them that makes sense that, yeah, oh gosh, that is weird. Like, why does a paper cut hurt so much when it's just this tiny little injury? And if I get a massive bruise on my arm that I don't remember getting, huh, well, I've actually experienced tissue damage without feeling pain. Because the thing is, is pain is incredibly memorable. So if that hurt when you got the bruise, you'd remember getting it. So I think it's, it's being able to give some of those little examples to people to um, have, them, have them think about it and have them say, huh, yeah, that doesn't make sense. That's interesting. I think they're golden examples for us to be using as clinicians in the clinic. So, I mean, we're saying here that pain is more than just an outcome of sensory input. So it's not sort of a to B and you get pain. Why is it that pain changes from the same sort of insult? It's interesting because I think it, it ends up being a discussion of uh, a larger breadth of what's going on for them at that time point in what environment um, and what is the context really of what it's all occurring in. Because our sensations and pain is included in that are really a bringing together of all the believable, credible evidence that's around us. And our brain takes in all that evidence and decides, do I need to protect this body part? Is an output of pain warranted to protect me, to change my behavior, to stop me from doing something? And so I guess an example of this that we might discuss is the way that even other sensory input can change your experience of pain. So there's a fantastic study that was done that was looking at people's um, nociceptive withdrawal reflex. So the, the reflex that when you put your hand on a burning stove, it makes you, you pull it back almost before you even feel the pain. But what they did is they were zapping people in the foot and looking at their withdrawal reflex. And then what they were doing is they just tested what happens to this withdrawal reflex and to how much pain people feel when you just give them different smells. And it was fascinating because if you give them a terrible smelling smell in the room while they get this testing done, their nociceptive withdrawal reflex is amplified. They are more protective of that body. And the stimulus that you give them hurts more than if you didn't have a smell or if you had a pleasant smelling um, smell going through the room. So it's incredible that 
we continually take in all this different information. And so the fact, let's say clinically, that a person one day one thing hurts and the other day maybe the same action doesn't, it's really can be informative to actually look through the different factors that have occurred on that day. What was the difference between the two days? Was it that actually on this day, you just found out that um, your mom isn't doing very well and you're gonna have to go take her to all these medical appointments and you're also really worried about her. That we know stress can, and anxiety can really cause your system to sensitize and to be more protective. And in this case, these things are important things because if you don't consider stuff like that, then what you're potentially thinking is, oh my gosh, and now something bad is happening to me because this didn't hurt yesterday and now it's hurting today. I must have injured myself further. When truthfully, if we understand a little bit more of the, the physiology behind pain, then it is not unreasonable to think that my increased stress levels of today have sensitized my system and I really do not need to be worried about this. I just need to do my best to, um, to deal with what's in front of me today and not add on this extra stress that I've injured myself further. And because I think, I guess another feature of this is that not only is our um, brain taking in information from all these different sources, but we are also constantly learning. And because that's how we survive after all, we have to learn that you don't put your hand on a hot stove or you, know, you don't chase a very angry looking kangaroo. You need to learn that. But the challenge is, is that sometimes we don't always, when we learn something, it can be very difficult for us to unlearn it. So an example of this is um, some work at, really great work that's being done by Anne Mulders out of um, you know, KU Leuven in Belgium. And she was kind of looking at this idea of, do people with pain actually learn that things are safe? So if they get, let's say they reach to the left or they reach to the right, and they always get zapped um, with an electric shock that hurts when they reach one way, uh, a certain direction. And, but then when that zap is no longer paired with a reach in a certain direction, people with chronic pain take much longer to learn and they actually don't learn as well. They don't learn that that direction is now safe. They keep that protective value of thinking, well, I know it hasn't given me a shock, you know, the last 30 times I reached that way, but if I remember yesterday, it did give me a shock. So I'm still gonna be protective. So it suggests that actually there's differences in how our system um, is learning and that can be important in our ability to actually learn that movements are safe. So keeping that in mind and also educating people about that can be helpful because it can give them a reason why maybe, for example, they, they still may consciously feel anxious when they do certain things, or they may um, actually have increased pain when they do certain movements. So I think it, I guess it opens up a discussion with people of why they feel the way they feel. This is some extremely uh, interesting stuff, and it's also very interesting, I guess, to find out that you can get ethics for anything within pain science if you're just going to zap. <laughs> yes, that's a good point. Yeah, I'm quite interested in getting into it. And um, so, I guess one thing that comes to my mind there is working within elite sporting, but any sporting environment where you have two people with the same injury, and, and you may have coaches or other staff that say to you as the doctor or physio, you know. Isn't he such, in, in Australia, they'd call a suck, but in other countries, they'll have another one saying, you know, isn't he a bit weak? He can't deal with the pain. They've both sprained their ankle. You know, 
why do some people deal with pain better than others? Yeah, that's a, a, another really good question. Um, I think it's probably not a simple answer. Um, some of the things that we certainly do know can contribute um, are, uh, we know that our sensations, for example, are influenced by our beliefs and by the meaning that we attach to different things. So, for example, if, um, let's say, we have two different people that have sprained their ankle, if for one person, let's say they've sprained their ankle a bunch in the past, and actually they pushed it too hard in the past, and it, it sat them out for three months instead of maybe the normal six weeks, that, four to six weeks that we might think an, an ankle would sideline us. Now, now they've got that memory of that. That's going to immediately affect then the protective nature um, that they have towards that body part. And it's important because that's not conscious. That's not a conscious choice that they're trying to be protective of it. But it can be a change, for example, in the sensitivity of the system, a change in um, maybe attention directed towards that area, almost a bit of hypervigilance towards that area. And these are, these are things that they're not always realizing are occurring. But then from a neurophysiological standpoint, their system is literally responding differently than the, the other person's system, maybe to a similar sensory input to that same sprained ankle. For one person, it's painful because the system sensitizes, and for the other, it's not. So beliefs um, and, and past experience can have a, a real effect on things like that. And I think it's important then to consider uh, the overall person in what's going on because it's much less likely that that person is just a sook because obviously it's a high level athlete. They can push themselves very hard and experience a fair bit of pain but when they are in control of it. And this is an, another aspect I think that's really important to look at is when things don't, when you don't feel like you're in control and things feel like they are out of control, you're getting pain for reasons you do not understand. And you see this person next to you that also has a sprained ankle who seems to be doing totally fine. That's scary. And so then understanding the different changes that can be occurring in your own system can be critical because then what it suggests is that you have a way to understand what's going on with you, and then you are able to develop strategies to be able uh, to deal with them and potentially decrease some of the, the sensitivity, for example, through altering beliefs, through altering behavior. And I think that can be really powerful. That's really useful for all of us working at the cold face with patients and giving them control of their pain experience. Do you have any stories or examples uh, for our listeners that they could use tomorrow in the clinic or try and replicate these type of stories to educate their patients about pain that they're experiencing and what it means to them? It, it's relevant to think of the information that we are giving uh, the patients that are coming in to see us, what we are providing. And uh, I have a, a story that is quite personal on this front um, that I've certainly experienced uh, the power of the information that you're provided with. Um, so I do a fair bit of running. And um, so I've had problems with plantar fasciitis, foot pain, heel pain for on and off for probably about 10 or 15 years. And um, so I was recently um, in, a, in a study and I got, as part of the study, got an ultrasound of my heel. And being you know, nosy, of course, I had to look and, and see what it showed. And I, I looked over I was incredibly surprised because what I saw was basically um, a, a partial uh, tear, uh, what looked to be a partial tear of my plantar fascia. 
And I was really surprised because I actually hadn't anticipated anything truly being wrong with my foot. I kind of just thought I probably flared it up every now and then. And so the next week I was, you know, going and going to run outside and, and enjoy myself. And probably within about two minutes of starting to run, I had a massive amount of pain in my foot. And so I did my normal thing where I walked for a little bit and, and kind of just tried to settle myself down, moved it around a little, felt okay, started to run again, again, pain within about two minutes. And so I actually ended up having to stop. Um, and so I started cross training, even that was a little bit sore. And so I could not figure out what is different. What have I done differently than last week? Am I overly stressed? Is there something else going on in my life? And the only thing I could pinpoint was that I'd actually seen this ultrasound image of my foot. And so I thought, okay, I kind of just need to put myself at peace with this. Just take a look at it again and just come to terms with it. So I, I, I went and, and asked to look at this, this um, ultrasound again. And when I went to go look at it, asked to, they brought it up on the screen. I was like, oh, no, 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 this, this, isn't, this isn't mine. This is the, the wrong image. This isn't what I saw. And they were like, oh, no, this is correct. So it turns out I got shown the wrong ultrasound image. Mine was completely fine. There was nothing wrong. There was no tear. There was nothing going on in there that I could see based on the ultrasound scan. But I had been mistakenly shown an image that actually had a decent injury. And so even though I know better, <laughs> that, that shouldn't matter, that what you see in terms of tissue damage does not dictate your, what you feel in terms of pain. It did not stop my system from completely ramping up protection because, I mean, I did receive very believable, credible evidence that there was a problem in my foot and that it was potentially in danger and therefore an appropriate output is pain to protect it. Um, so I guess what that really taught me, well, first of all, I was very embarrassed <laughs> because I really didn't think that that would happen to me. But what it really drove home was that actually we give our patients information all the time. And even in the way that we word things, when we say things like your back is out or a slipped disc or things like that, people get literal pictures in their head of damage. And that believable information that's coming from a trusted known health professional can really influence how the system is responding to things. And I think this becomes even more important to consider because some scans, like for example, when we look at um, MRIs of the back, we know that MRIs are incredibly sensitive, but they're not very specific. They pick up any differences, but it doesn't always mean that those differences are important. Because for example, we looked that, you know, half over half of 50 year olds without any back pain, if we throw them into an MRI scanner, they will have evidence of degenerative changes and or disc changes, uh, disc bulges even. And so we know that they're not indicative necessarily of, of a problem and danger and, and what should be pain. And so the fact that these are just normal changes that, we, that occur as we age, having people look at those scans and see those normal changes, those wrinkles of time, so to speak, to uh, use a phrase that I know Dave Butler from Noi just loves that I love as well. Um, but there are these normal changes and it can be enough to scare people, to really get them more protective of a body part that actually doesn't need to be overly protected at that point because those scans are just showing what occurs to all of us over time. So I think as clinicians, a really important thing for us to consider is what are we doing when we're communicating with people? Are we ramping up 
their protective responses in their nervous system? Or are we doing our best to help keep that within normal ranges of protection? That's a fantastic way to close the podcast. And thank you very much for your time, Dr. Stanton. Oh, my pleasure. You've been listening to a BGSM podcast with Dr. Tasha Stanton and myself, Liam West, discussing the role pain plays in patients' injuries. Engage further with the BGSM via the usual social media channels and head to the app for all of our categorised content and papers on there. I hope you get to have a physically active, pain-free day.